Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Do you want to start a podcast but you don't know how? I didn't either. But let me tell you, if you ever heard about Anchor, that's the best way to make a podcast. When I try, I must admit, I was a little bit skeptical at first, you know. But then, then I heard, when I heard it was free, I didn't think it would be this good, okay? Let me tell you. It's so good. Because there's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. You don't even need to deal with the headache of thinking about how to publish on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, because Anchor will do that for you. They use Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so many more. If you can, if you want to make a living from your podcast, when there is no minimum listenership required, so this is the place. So if you want to start and make a living of a podcast, it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. You can download the free Android app or on your Android or Apple phone, or you can go to anchor.fm to get started. Use Anchor for the, for your to make your podcast experience the ultimate podcast experience. We are live. Um, welcome to World That Aged Well. My, I'm your host, Alan, and uh, today we will take a look at ancient Rome. Now, what do people think about when they, you hear the word ancient Rome? You think about aqueducts, the gladiator, gladiator with Russian pro. You think about the huge empire that they created, but also the Republic and the fall. You think Caesar. And uh, some of the things we're going to talk about today is the birth of Rome. We're going to talk about, the, about some of the emperors, take a look at what they've done and who they are. So let's introduce our guest today, Eric Tiller. Yes, good evening. Um, tell us a little bit about what your interest in Rome is and how you got interested in this, this era. Well, I am a history teacher by trade, teaching in the upper secondary school. Uh, I also have a master's degree in history, and on top of that, I've also studied uh, archaeology. So, my background is both in the literary sources, but also in the more material sources. Right. Uh, we don't just start directly on the beginning. And we're going to start with Rome's origin because this is nobody really knows the origin of Rome. Nobody really knows the date or birth of Rome, if you call it that. But many think that man, and money does take this for a fact that Romanus, and mm. they're going to talk a little bit about him, founded Rome and they called it after himself, like money 
profound cities do. And let's talk about Romulus for, for a while. Who he was and what he is known for. Yeah, when it comes to the origin of Rome, uh, it is, and uh, you will probably hear this uh, statement quite often, uh, it's complicated. Uh, on one side we have the origin myth with the Romulus, but on the other side uh, we have some uh, historical evidence that contradicts it. But still, uh, part of the myth can also be found in the historical and archaeological <laughs> evidence. So uh, it's sort of a jigsaw puzzle to connect. But what what is the most famous myth, if you will call, if that's what you were told about Romulus? Because it's quite an interesting one. Yeah, when it uh, comes to establishment, it's uh, probably the uh, sort of divine origin. And uh, the Roman historian Livius actually comments on this, that uh, the Romans uh, probably did uh, connect uh, their origin or their so-called first king to a divine origin. Though so that was, according to Livius, uh, probably to instill more of a national pride. So, but then let's talk about the first citizens of Rome. And most of them were actually outlaws, criminals, prostitutes, hmm. and etc. So, let's talk a little bit about the not invasion, but the, the, the Roman, the first citizens of Rome. Yeah, uh, again, we see that the myth and uh, the archaeological evidence uh, sort of disagree. Uh, while it was true that Rome, uh, at least uh, in the eyes of the neighbors, was sort of a backwater, uh, it still wasn't sort of the dumping ground for criminals and prostitutes. If we look at uh, the earliest settlements, uh, we can see that uh, they are quite typical for an agricultural society. We see these small farmer huts that are among the oldest settlements found on the various hills that make up the Roman city. Right, and uh, you know, the, Rome is unknown for its republic in the beginning, but it's had kings in the first, but what, in terms of talking about the first seven kings, so tell me a little bit about them and why they were so fast abandoned the, the king, king monarchy. Yeah, uh, again, here we see that uh, the myth and the history actually uh, blend together. Uh, according to the myth, uh, Romulus was the first king and he was succeeded by roughly six other kings. Uh, while we have no direct evidence for Romulus, we do have evidence for uh, the consecutive kings. Uh, for instance, King Numes, uh, whom the entire science around coins has been named. Um, but uh, we can also see that uh, in the Age of Kings, we get the origin of the Roman distaste for kings. And that came mostly with later kings. Uh, and also here we can see sort of the mix-up between cultures, because uh, the Romans and the Latins were not uh, the only ones you know, on the Italian peninsula. Uh, in, f in fact, um, they were probably newcomers, because... Uh, the Etruscans were likely there way before them, and we can see this because of their language, uh, while the Romans were speaking Latin, uh, which was one of the branches of the Indo-European language. Uh, the Etruscans spoke, well, Etruscan, which was not from the Indo-European language. So we can assume that um, the Etruscans were there before the Romans. But in those early years, we see that these two get mixed up a bit. 
according to the legends, uh, the last three kings were Etruscan, uh, despite it being, well, a Latin city. Um, but we also see that many of the customs that Romans uh, were later famous for were indeed uh, from Etruscan traditions. Um, but again, we see that the myth does not really encompass the entire historical truth, because uh, while the last Etruscan king, uh, Tarquinius Superbus, uh, was uh, chased out of Rome, uh, and they, according to myth, stopped with the Etruscan influence, then we can still see that uh, the Etruscan material culture still seeps into the Roman culture even after the last king. But why were they so distasteful for kings? What, what, were they really that bad rulers that they wanted to chase them out of the country? Well, uh, according to legend again, um, the last king, uh, Tarquinius Superbus, uh, took certain liberties with uh, some of the women in uh, the more prominent families of Rome. And uh, he was thus uh, chased away, uh, including uh, one of the forefathers of uh, a certain Brutus. Um, and uh, Tarquinus tried more than once to reclaim Rome, but uh, he never managed that. So he was, at that point, the last king. After which we gained the Roman Republic, in which the idea of a king just gave people the itches. Right, and that uh, then makes us go to the birth of the Republic, and how was the Republic first founded, and who, how, do, how did that process go? Again, I think it's sort of a gradual process. Uh, they didn't just uh, start out uh, right after the kings. Many of the institutions and the social structures were established during the kings. Um, and indeed, Rome fits in quite well with uh, the other societies in antiquity in that it's a city-state. Uh, we can see this uh, in uh, ancient Greece as well, that uh, most societies were built around the city-state, in which you had the, the citizens who were privileged to certain rights, and then uh, you had those who were either slaves or simply outsiders. Uh, the norm then was that uh, it was very hard or even impossible for outsiders to gain this uh, citizenship. But uh, when it comes to Rome, one of the major factors in their expansion is that uh, they actually turned this around and used uh, the grants of citizenships and Latin rights to include other peoples in other city-states. So where other city-states used the rights as something exclusive to keep people out, uh, the Romans sort of turned it on its head and used it as a tool to include people and assimilate them. But something I want to touch upon is, what is the difference between a democracy and a republic? Is there any difference at all? Or uh, It depends how you look at it. Um, in a sense, uh, a republic can also be democratic at the same time. It uh, depends on the definition. A republic is simply a government where you have no uh, monarch that is ruling, while a democracy is a society where the people rules. And those two can fit quite well together. Uh, but you can also have a democracy that's uh, a monarchy at the same time, for instance, a constitutional monarchy. And you can also have a republic without having a democracy, 
by having it being an oligarchy where only a small elite are uh, uh, holding the power, which was uh, actually the case of the Roman Republic in the early phases. But uh, as uh, Rome expanded and also gained more enemies, uh, the need to actually appease the plebeians uh, became more and more important because well, they were the bulk of the troops. And as such, we can see that uh, the rights were expanded beyond just the patricians and into the plebeian ranks, for instance, with the office of People's Tribune. Right. And one of the Rome's, when we talk about Rome's expansion, they conquered Italy. But one, of, one city that is probably one of the most important in ancient times is Carthage. But why were the cities so important? Why did the Romans want it so much? It wasn't so much that they wanted the city, it was more like uh, that they wanted it gone. Uh, mostly because uh, uh, Carthage, just like Rome, was uh, a city-state on the rise. Um, Carthage uh, originated from the Phoenician society, uh, but started uh, branching out and being more independent later. And uh, one of the areas where they clashed was the hegemony of the Mediterranean, the Marum Nostrum. And um, the Carthaginians, like the Phoenicians before them, were, well, a sailing people. So they were actually able to outcompete the Romans uh, at sea, at least uh, initially. And um, it was sort of, uh, what would you say, one of the corks that uh, sort of kept the Roman expansion around the Mediterranean Bay for quite a while because uh, the Carthaginians offered, uh, well, resistance at sea because, uh, well, they were competition. Did I look? Yeah, 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 exactly. And, mm. But one, one of those first enemies that's most famous mm. during the Roman Republic, mm. and we're going to take a look at him, is Hannibal. Mm. Yeah. Not Hannibal Lecter from uh, the series, <laughs> but Hannibal. We are to, and why did he dislike Rome so much? What was the reason why he wanted Rome, the Roman Republic gone? Well, uh, initially we have uh, sort of the personal level where uh, Hannibal Barca's father uh, actually made him swear an oath as a young boy that he would forever be an enemy of Rome. But we can also again see that uh, there is this uh, competition between two expanding city-states. Uh, not just in the Mediterranean, but also in uh, Spain, uh, where both Carthage and Rome were uh, trying to expand. And so the first front between uh, Hannibal and the Romans uh, wasn't in the Mediterranean or the Italian peninsula. It was uh, on the uh, Iberian peninsula. Would you say it was personal for Hannibal, or would you say it was more like, I want competition? Uh, I think it was a bit of both. Uh, of course, uh, it could be that the oath is wars a young boy is part of, again, a myth. Uh, that is something that one should be aware of when you're sp when speaking about ancient Rome, that uh, many of the sources are very biased. We can, for instance, come back to that when we speak about uh, Julius Caesar. Uh, but it's also that um, one of his main interests was to secure... Uh, the interests of Carthage and securing uh, Spain was uh, part of it, but also entering uh, the Italian peninsula and actually neutralizing Rome there was another step that uh, probably was meant to simply cull the competition. Right. 
And let's talk about the epic battle because he used elephants and the Romans never seen elephants before. So this was a huge deal for them. Totally the important battle of uh, Rome. Well, there are several battles um, between Hannibal and the Romans. And uh, the irony is that while Hannibal has become famous for uh, his elephants, uh, they were actually not uh, among the things that uh, won him victories in battle. Um, for instance, uh, when we talk about the famous crossing of the Alps, uh, most of the elephants actually died on the way across. So when we come to the Battle of Cannae, uh, there are not really any elephants in the battlefield there. And instead he actually has to uh, use uh, what he knows of the Roman tactics and uh, play against that. And um, what actually caused that major victory was uh, the tactic of double envelopment, um, in which uh, pretty much the entire Roman army was uh, destroyed. And I actually seen some calculations on the death rate of the Romans during that battle. And uh, one of the estimates is that uh, during the Battle of Cannae, uh, roughly 95 Roman soldiers were killed every minute. Wow, that's quite a lot. And I also tried to look up some sources on uh, how did the Romans fail to break out of that double envelopment. And actually saw someone speak about uh, this uh, mental reaction you have to a hopeless battle situation. So uh, quite a large portion of the soldiers could actually end up being paralyzed by fear or despair simply by being surrounded and uh, seeing this many of their fellow soldiers dying that quickly. Right. But what, what caused the fall of Hannibal? Because in the end, he almost managed to take Rome, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, again, it's uh, oh, it's complicated. As I said, I would say that quite often. Um, because many have criticized Hannibal for uh, not uh, marching on Rome itself. Uh, but uh, again, uh, there are several explanations for why he didn't do it. One was that he... Uh, didn't actually have the sufficient forces to lay siege to the city. Uh, another is that um, he didn't want to risk uh, the wavering uh, uh, allies he had in Italy because he had some Gallic allies there and uh, he didn't want to really push those too far. Uh, another reason is that uh, he simply didn't intend to destroy Rome. He wanted it for himself. Or... I actually think uh, the idea was that uh, if he pushed them hard enough, he could uh, subdue them and uh, force them into a treaty that was favorable for Carthage. Uh, but uh, that turned out to be quite a miscalculation of the Roman spirit. But how did Hannibal fall in the end? Because since he didn't get to do his goal, to what he hoped for. Well, again, it's complicated. Uh, you should make a bingo chart of how often I say that. But um, he also had uh, political enemies back in Carthage, and those actually strangled his supply lines into the Italian peninsula. So in the end, uh, as the Romans uh, went from sending legions after him to simply denying him battle, uh, he was forced to retreat because his supplies were strained. At which point the Romans uh, followed him across to Carthage, and we get the famous Battle of Sama. 
And, right. and that is where we get Hannibal and the elephants. But uh, at this point, the Romans had figured out how to deal with them. So they simply made uh, sort of alleyways in between their legions. So when the elephants charged, they simply charged straight past them and barely did any damage. Now, it should be said that Hannibal didn't actually die at Sama, even though he was uh, defeated. Uh, he actually fled further east and uh, served many years as a counselor and mercenary in the eastern provinces. Um, and we also have this, uh, I'm not sure if it's uh, historical or if it's mythical, but uh, we have this uh, instance where uh, Hannibal and his nemesis from Rome, Scipi Africanus, actually meet um, later on and discuss uh, tactics and uh, admire each other and uh, ask each other who is the greatest uh, uh, commander of all time and all those things. So I'm not sure if that's uh, something that can be confirmed historically, but uh, it's sort of a nice touch to the story that uh, the two arch enemies met up later and just uh, had a nice chat over who was the greatest right. commander. And do forgive me if I jump a little bit fast ahead of time, because yeah. we're going to go quickly through the Roman Republic, and now mm. we're going to go through perhaps one of the most... He was not an emperor, but he was the first dictator of Rome. And you know who I'm talking about, of course, Caesar. Because his early life, mm. his father was in the wrong side of civil war. Is that not correct? Yeah, uh, and again, uh, the opponent during that civil war was actually an earlier dictator, namely Sulla. And to see the path leading up to Caesar, uh, first we have the social unrest with uh, uh, the miscontent among the plebeians, uh, which led to the Gracchian revolutions. But uh, another thing is the Marian reforms in the Roman army which meant that uh, the commanders now were the ones who mostly paid and provided for the troops and also rewarded them. And that was uh, probably among the major contributions to the fall of the Republic, because uh, the armies no longer really felt loyalty to the Senate, but to the commander who actually paid them. And we see this time and time again. Uh, People play up this uh, crossing of the Rubicon where Caesar marches uh, across this sacred border where it was not really allowed to bring soldiers, but uh, he was far from the first who did it. Uh, Marius did it first, uh, then we had Sulla, who actually took control of Rome as a dictator, just like Caesar would do some years later. Uh, the difference is that uh, Sulla actually uh, uh, retired after some years. Uh, and gave up his dictatorship, though his name right. was discredited forever. So, but, but would you say that the fall of Rome was inevitable, or would you say that the fall of the Republic, sorry, was inevitable, or do you think that it would have was a chance that it would have stayed the Republic? Well, it's uh, difficult to say, uh, but. Uh, my theory is that uh, with the Marian reforms in the army and giving the commanders such uh, a great influence and loyalty among the troops, uh, we would have seen someone do like uh, Sulla and Caesar did sooner or later. And in fact, we can actually sort of use that explanation to see the later periods of civil unrest. For instance, when we have the uh, uh, military emperors 
those who are proclaimed by the legions. Again, we see that uh, the loyalty to the legions uh, equals political power, uh, and that power is now removed from the Senate. So even though we have this uh, idea that... Uh, the transition from republic to empire is uh, sort of this one line drawn in the sand. Many of the causes of that shift still continue to be in effect after. Right, but I want to to focus on Caesar right now, mm -hmm. but what you know what to mention is that he was captured by pirates a few years before he become dictator. Tell, tell them a little bit about the capture of the pirates, because it's quite a funny and interesting story. Yeah, uh, the story goes that uh, he actually charmed the pirates and made good friends with them, and when his uh, ransom was finally paid, he jokingly said that uh, he'd be back to kill them all, uh, which turned out to not be a joke. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, one thing that should be mentioned about Caesar is uh, how he is often used as a historical source. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about his books about the Gallic Wars. But uh, there are things there that uh, show that uh, one should be quite careful with using Caesar as a historical source. Uh, one thing is that uh, in some of the battles where he had to retreat, he clearly downplays the casualties on the Roman side. But also, when he describes how the Germans are hunting moose, he describes it as uh, the Germans waiting until the moose is falling asleep up against the tree, and then they chop down the tree. So, when we have historical sources with uh, sort of Looney Tunes descriptions like that, uh, one should be careful about using them uh, without some critical considerations. Right. Uh, we don't have to talk about the Battle of Gaul because he was quite a military genius. So let's talk. How did, what was his tactic against the Gallic, Gallic people? Uh, that actually depended very much on the battlefield. But um, sort of uh, what's often described as his uh, military magnum opus is, of course, the Battle of uh, Alicia. Uh, and normally, when we're talking about siege, uh, the rule of thumb is that uh, you cannot maintain a siege with uh, an army in your back. But uh, when it comes to Caesar, he simply took that as a challenge. So he built uh, quite a few miles of fortifications first, an inner wall that surrounded the city of Elysia, and then he built another wall around his own encampments. Uh, can imagine it's sort of like a spiky donut uh, around the city. Right. But uh, forgive me if I jump a little back and forth here, but, but he married his daughter to Pompeius, and unfortunately she dies. Was this where they were sort of became enemies, or was this that Pompeius turned against him because he tried to marry his other daughter, is that correct? But it didn't pan out in the way she's awarded. Yeah, I think uh, when it comes to the conflict between uh, uh, Pompey and Caesar, uh, there are, again, quite a few reasons and uh, complications. And I think uh, one of the major factors there is that um, the original agreement, the triumvirate, uh, had, uh, well, not, well, they were not three anymore. Uh, initially, you had these uh, three men. Uh, Caesar, Pompey, and uh, Crassus. 
um, who had uh, sort of uh, publicly uh, made it clear that, yeah, uh, we three rule Rome. What are you going to do about it? Nothing, because we have legions. Uh, but uh, then again, Crassus goes ahead and gets himself killed uh, in Parthia, and that leaves uh, just uh, uh, Caesar and Pompey. And that means that there's no third person who can keep the other two in check. Uh, and in addition, um, the balance of power between them uh, was sort of shifting. Uh, when the triumvirate was initiated, Caesar was uh, quite young and sort of the rising star, while Pompey and Crassus were older and uh, uh, more established as both politicians and commanders. But as uh, Caesar aged, and especially during the Gallic Wars, uh, his political influence and also military influence uh, skyrocketed, and I think Pompey may have seen that as a threat to his own position. But he didn't always do good. It was a lot. He did a lot of criminal activities, and that was one of the reasons why he did, was careful with coming back to Rome because he knew that if he went after power, he would be trialed for for criminal charges. Isn't that correct? And how did he jump back to Rome to siege power? Over? Uh, well, first we can look at the reason, and that is uh, because he had far extended and gone way outside his mandate as consul in Gaul. But uh, also he had gained political enemies. Uh, some saw him as a direct threat. Uh, we also had the Gracchian. Which he was. Yeah, but we also had the Catonian and the Gracchian parties within uh, the Roman Senate. And at least the Catonians uh, looked upon Caesar as a great threat to the uh, traditions of the Republic. They probably remembered Sulla and uh, was uh, rightfully so fearful that uh, Caesar would uh, repeat what Sulla had done. Uh, but uh, when it comes to the actual move, uh, the crossing of the Rubicon, uh, it's uh, sort of like an early form of Blitzkrieg, uh, namely that um, Caesar knew Pompey had more legions, but uh, those legions weren't uh, up and going at the time or anywhere near Rome. So by having a fort forced march straight to Rome before Pompey could mobilize, uh, it was sort of a race, wasn't it? Yeah. So he, his uh, sort of tactic was to seize Rome before Pompey had a chance to mobilize his legions, and thus he had to retreat. Right, and when it comes to power, he, he get an alliance with one of Egypt's most probably famous pharaohs, Cleopatra. So let's talk a little bit about this, the relationship between Cleopatra and Caesar. Yeah, uh, one of the things that uh, should be made clear, no matter what, when we're talking about Rome, is that uh, the wealth was uh, in the east. And uh, Egypt, was, which was not uh, directly under Rome at this point, but uh, considered a close ally, uh, was also one of the main sources for the grain. Now, uh, Roman citizens had uh, a right to a certain amount of grain. And... Uh, Maintaining the grain shipments uh, was of utmost importance. And uh, Caesar's involvement in Egypt, uh, one, uh, was to sort of uh, 
get there and claim the territory before his uh, rivals in the Civil War could, but also to keep control of the grain shipments. Because if um, Pompey's allies, I say his allies because Pompey at this point was quite dead, uh, if um, they had gotten control over Egypt, they could simply strangle the grain shipments and uh, therefore uh, cause uh, uprisings in Rome itself. And that was also a threat from uh, the internal conditions in Egypt, because at this point you had uh, an Egyptian civil war uh, between Cleopatra and her brother. And uh, one of the reasons Caesar went there was simply to intervene in that conflict to gain control over Egypt and thus the grain shipments. Right. But they also had a romantic relationship and ended up having a son. What happened? Because I'm not quite, I don't quite remember, but what happened to the son that Cleopatra and Caesar had? Well, uh, there again we have the fiction and uh, the reality. If you have watched HBO's Rome, we have this ending where uh, Caesarian is really the son of Titus Polo and he actually survives, but uh, most sources indicate that uh, after uh, the second war there between Octavian and Mark Antony, uh, Caesarian was uh, simply killed. What's not talking about him taking over after Caesar as emperor of Rome? Is that fiction or is that... Uh, who? Uh, say again? See, his son with Cleopatra, that he was supposedly going to take over Rome. Um, as an emperor. That may have been so, but that has not been uh, made clear in any of his wills. And uh, speaking his will, he did take... Um, an adoptive son, but that wasn't uh, Caesarian, uh, that was uh, Octavian. And at that point, it uh, caught everyone off guard. So let's talk about the fall of Caesar, because we need to go and jump a little ahead right now. Mm. But how, what, what was one of the reasons that what the Senate wanted him gone? Well, that brings us back to this sort of allergy to anything that could resemble uh, a kingship. And uh, the more and more Caesar extended his powers beyond simply being consul, uh, the more uh, the worry grew that uh, he would actually make himself a king, uh, which uh, he was, in effect, in all but name. And if you look at the conspirators who uh, went ahead and assassinated him, we can again see the old Catonian uh, wing of the Senate. Right. You don't think there was any famous last words like in Shakespeare's play? A lot of people debunked this, that this was just in Shakespeare's play. Well, if you look at the Roman sources, which of course were written uh, quite a few years after the incident itself, uh, it simply described that he grunted and covered his face with his toga. So that's sort of uh, what the Roman sources say. Uh, though I can imagine he said something along the lines of "ouch." Mm. But look, Octavian was quite a far away when this happened, and it came as a shock to him. So, how did it come to power to come back to Rome? What was his, his motivation to do so? Uh, 
One, it could be that uh, he's sought a power for himself, but uh, initially I think one of the motivations could simply have been uh, survival, uh, because uh, something that had become custom after such periods of civil war was that you uh, got rid of any political enemies. Uh, we had seen that, uh, for instance, during Sulla, uh, who introduced something called proscription, uh, and that was that you made a list of people who were declared enemies of the state and uh, well they got killed and all their properties were seized and I think part of uh, Octavian's motivations may have been that uh, he feared uh, uh, the conspirators who killed Caesar would also conduct a proscription and kill those who were either close or allied with Caesar how how did he get the power when he came back to Rome? Did he just walk in the Senate, or did he say? Uh, well, again, we come back to the Marian reforms. Uh, we keep coming back to those. Um, because Octavian's path to power was uh, simply put through the army. And namely that he took up major loans and used those to reward the troops that had previously been under the command of Caesar. So again, we can see that uh, after the Marian reforms, the path to power was simply to get the army behind you. Right. And then when it came to power, it quite famously, cha famously sorry, changed his name to Augustus. Yeah. And we also have a, his, his name is now in the month mm -hmm. August, obviously. Yeah. And, but, and also, um, the, we all know that the name Caesar uh, was continued as uh, the title of the emperor, uh, even after uh, the uh, Julio-Claudian dynasty died out. Uh, but what's not that common knowledge is that uh, the title of Augustus was very often imposed on the uh, apparent heir to the Roman throne. Right. But uh, what is, when, when Augustus to the throne, he had quite some interesting laws, if you should talk about those for a minute. He was had quite some harsh laws in during his rule as Senate. Uh, yeah, I haven't looked that much into those, uh, but uh, since we are talking about uh, Augustus and the lawmaking, um, we enter sort of a phase where we see a strong uh, consolidation of state power. And uh, this kind of state building uh, is um, sort of uh, the pillars of uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, because even after the uh, Senate loses more and more influence, uh, especially under Tiberius, uh, we still see that the Roman state is expanded and refined. And that is sort of something that comes back again uh, during the time of the Empire. Uh, namely that uh, the Roman state somehow survives even the worst of emperors. But what, what, how did Augustus expand the empire from what it already was to during his reign? How did he, what transferred to the siege and how he has some personal tactic to do so? Well, uh, 
one of the main uh, contributions to the empire was of course Egypt, which was uh, a part of the empire after the fall of Cleopatra. Uh, but he also tried to expand uh, further north and east, uh, for instance into the Germanic areas, where uh, things didn't go all that well. And, right. and I think uh, people often talk about the expansions, but uh, what should be noted with um, Augustus is that uh, uh, after the defeat in the Teutoburger Forest, uh, we actually see that uh, he goes from uh, an expansionist policy to more of a consolidation policy. Uh, it's also around the same time that uh, the Romans are becoming more aware of the empires to the east, uh, beyond Parthia. And I think this caused sort of realization in Augustus that uh, uh, even though Rome is massive, it's still not uh, anywhere capable of taking on much more of the world. So after that sort of uh, hard awakening, we see that the Romans do not truly expand. Uh, we see some expansions in Britain, but uh, they more turn to consolidating and keeping their territories rather than expanding them. Right, but we don't have to move yeah. on. I'm sorry about this, but with Augustus for Tiberius taking the throne, we're not going to talk much about him, but he was not very well liked. But one of his nephews, mm. we, however, we're going to focus on, mm. is Caligula. Mm. And he wa and Tiberius got him to exile. Why, why, why did he want Caligula and his family in exile or killed? Did you look at them as a threat? or? Oh, they were certainly a threat. Uh, Caligula was, uh, of course, the son of uh, Germanicus, uh, who was, uh, after, again, war with the Germans, uh, sort of is lauded as this great Roman hero. And um, Augustus actually named him one of the heir apparents after he died. But uh, when Germanicus uh, died under rather suspicious circumstances and Tiberius became emperor, then of course uh, the family of Germanicus uh, became a political threat. So Tiberius taking Caligula in was sort of unexpected, but not all that unexpected, because as uh, his popularity plummeted, he may have tried to use the son of the very popular Germanicus to boost his own popularity. Uh, because he wasn't very well liked, was he, Tiberius? He was this bitter old man. Nobody really saw him as a few, as an emperor at all. He just he didn't do so well. Yeah, and part of the reason for that is that while Augustus, uh, despite having taken absolute power, still tried to make sort of a semblance of uh, the old institutions like the Senate, uh, Tiberius uh, quite openly ignored them. And uh, one of the things Tiberius is the most famous for are his uh, mock trials, uh, where he simply put his political enemies on trial, uh, condemned them to death with uh, no evidence whatsoever, and then seized their property. So, and he also used that sort of um, blackmail and leverage against uh, the Roman elites. Um, so, in the end, he actually 
sort of caught on that people did not really like him very much, and he then retired to Capri. Now, but this this was quite early in his reign, and Rome has been without an emperor, without an emperor because he's were gone from Rome quite a long time. Yeah, and that's when he gets Caligula in, and Caligula. Mm. Let's talk about him for why. What did he think when he told Rome? Man Tiberius told Caligula from exile. Was where he was going to execute him. Was worried. Yeah. Then we come to Capri, uh, the quite infamous island. Uh, for those who aren't aware, uh, Capri was reputed to be sort of uh, Tiberius' little fun house of horror, where all sort of murder and sexual deviations happened. Uh, reportedly, Caligula started taking part in that as well. Again, we need to be critical about these sources because many of these uh, claims were made to sort of discredit them after their death. Yeah. But uh, what we know is that um, Caligula's stay on Capri with Tiberius was quite a fearful one because he had no idea what would happen. Would he be killed or would he simply be there for sport? And uh, several sources say that uh, Tiberius... I used the time to play different mind games with Caligula. Because he had a son as well that wanted to take over as emperor, but he, Tiberius wanted to see who was most fit. Is that not correct? Yeah, uh, though he named both, but, well, Caligula got rid of the other. And again, that there we see sort of, again, the heritage of the Marian Revolution, where someone takes control of the power in Rome and gets rid of their enemies. So, in the first couple of months, he does everything right. Tell me a little bit about some of the things he did do his first time as an emperor. Uh, Caligula was actually lauded when he came in. People saw this as this new golden age. Uh, now we were rid of first thinking old uh, Tiberius. And uh, one of the things Caligula actually did quite well was uh, improving on Rome's infrastructure and economy. And this wasn't just for a few months, it's actually for the first few years. Uh, but then again, we come to this famous shift. Some have attributed to a fit of disease, uh, which uh, struck him down and left him near death for weeks. Uh, do you think it was poison, or do you think it's just natural causes? Because some discuss that it may have been poisoned, that it may have been poisoned by someone else. Uh, yeah, again, when it comes to Roman politics, poison is never out of the question, uh, though uh, Rome was also quite a disease-ridden city. And one disease that uh, very few people think about, which was rife uh, both in Italy and also in England uh, in earlier times, was malaria. So, because there were quite a bit more marshland around uh, the ancient cities than we imagine today. And where there's marshlands, there are mosquitoes. So some historians have said that the symptoms uh, described in Caligula uh, are uh, more fitting with uh, malaria than anything else. But that this is where it goes suddenly, if you call it crazy. And let's talk about that after the fall in London recover. Yeah, that is again where we need to differentiate between what is fact and what is fiction. Uh, not going to dwell into that uh, movie about Caligula, uh, but uh, 
what we see is that he uh, directly challenged the authority of the Senate and made it quite clear that uh, they were beneath him. Um, again, we also have all these stories about uh, sexual deviations, about violence, about random killings. But if you look at... Something, something I also wanted to take a look at is that Mary's sister. Isn't that correct? Uh, yeah, that has also been mentioned. Uh, but if you look at the political moves he made, is um, that uh, where he initially had uh, promised the senators that uh, all the old archives and uh, blackmail material that Tiberius had on them had been mm. destroyed, uh, he suddenly pulled it out and said, Oh no, I still have them. And uh, he started doing uh, some of the same political moves that Tiberius did. Mm. And we have to again. I'm sorry, we have, but we have to move yeah. on. How? How? What was the fall of Toledo? How did it? Well, that was uh, part one in a long tradition where the Praetorian Guard, uh, which was uh, again something that came with Augustus, uh, regular soldiers uh, placed in Rome, which was unheard of before. Um, and they sort of acted both as an additional police force, but mainly as the Emperor's bodyguard. Uh, apparently, they didn't get that memo when it came to Caligula and killed him instead. Uh, whereupon they appointed uh, Claudius directly after. And again, uh, we see the connection between uh, the military power and the Emperor's. Right, we don't have to jump over... Claudius, and we don't take his successor, Nero, the fifth emperor. Yeah. So let's talk a little about Nero. What was, how, what did he do when it came to power? Why was he so unpopular among the people? We don't get to the burning eventually, mm. but we, let's talk about a little bit about his start, his beginning of siege to power. Yeah, Nero came to power at a very young age, and. Uh... That uh, may have been quite a mistake, uh, because you suddenly gave uh, what equaled supreme executive power to a rather angsty teen. And uh, what does he do? Well, he does whatever he pleases. Um, but uh, most of the initial animosity towards Nero wasn't because of his political moves, but actually more of his behavior. Uh, for instance, that he not only spent his time with, but also acted himself on the stage. And uh, actors at this point in history were considered uh, no better than prostitutes. So people saw this as this uh, great degradation of the imperial office. So that's that's make it to the burning of Rome and many historians. Of course, we talked about this earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, in between us two before we were recorded, mm. but Manin claimed that he was part of the one who burned Rome to build his his image, but mm. you debunked this theory. Why? Uh, there are quite a few sources that uh, point against Nero being the one who instigated the fire. Uh, firstly, that he wasn't in Rome at the uh, time being. He was uh, quite a few miles outside. But uh, once he got uh, news of the fire, he returned. He actually took 
part in leading the uh, extinguishing effort. And uh, after uh, the fire was extinguished or there was nothing left to burn, depending on how you look at it, um, he actually allowed many of the homeless to reside in the Imperial Palace until some shelters could be put up. And He did some good during the burning of the room as yeah. well. And uh, again, that is sort of... Uh, a trend when we see these uh, emperors that are often uh, painted in very black light that um, uh, some of it is of course correct uh, some prosecutions uh, assassination of political enemies but uh, their personal habits and personalities and deviances all those are often exaggerated by people who wrote down their histories uh, and right. there is also this uh, myth that uh, Nero played the fiddle as Rome bird, which uh, would be even harder as the fiddle wasn't even invented at that point. Mm -hmm. But he also saw this as an opportunity to build a palace in his name. Yeah, uh, and that uh, was actually never finished. Uh... But... But something I want to touch upon is, uh, I'm sorry if yep. this is what was before or after, I, forgive me if I jump a little bit in, in yep. between here, but his, he wanted to kill his own mother. So why, why was this? Why did he kill his own mother? Yeah, again, the exact reasons why is uh, uncertain, but uh, his mother had had a great influence on him uh, throughout his young years. And I think that uh, we again saw uh, a power struggle when it came to uh, the later years. Uh, now, this is one of the most creative ways to actually assassinate someone. Uh, reputedly, according to the sources, uh, he uh, ensured that his mother was on a boat that was actually rigged to fall apart out on the open ocean. But uh, this stubborn old hag actually swam back to shore, uh, upon which uh, Nero panicked and simply sent someone to stab her. Uh, which, but she refused. She refused to believe that it was Nero who wanted to kill yeah. her. Though. But another, mm. another one even wanted to get rid of was his first wife because it was not really a happy mm. marriage either, was it? No, it wasn't. So he wanted to get rid of her as well. There was quite a few assassinations during his uh, reign. So let's talk about some of the bloodshed we already mentioned during Nero's reign. If you can talk, elaborate a little bit about this. Yeah, again, Nero was known to have quite a fickle personality. So, um, uh, just like under Tiberius and Caligula, uh, you could end up getting killed without uh, ever having gone to court or having actually done anything. And uh, actually, next emperor, uh, Vespasian, uh, took some great risks by falling asleep during some of uh, Nero's uh, less than stellar performances. And acts such as those could uh, actually be uh, lethal. But uh, one of the things that Nero probably is most famous for when you're talking about bloodbaths uh, is the persecution of the Christians. Yeah, because it was not a happy time to be a Christian in the first hundred years. Of the Roman Empire. No, and uh, even at the time of Constantine, uh, the Christian population in Rome was only roughly 10%. But uh, when it comes to the reasons why he persecuted the Christians, um, uh, there have been some debate about it. Um, 
one could be that they didn't want to uh, revere the emperor as a god, but uh, again, that is not really considered one of the more plausible reasons. Um, one of the more uh, plausible reasons that I have read about is that um, uh, the Christian societies often met in secret, and that was seen as quite a suspicious activity. Because uh, something we didn't talk quite a lot about is that the Romans had a, their sort of own... I won't hesitate to call it religion, but they had something called paganism. And what's, what's paganism? Uh, well, when it comes to Roman religion, it's sort of a patchwork. Uh, we, of course, know that uh, they took uh, quite a bit of the Hellenistic or Greek uh, culture into their religion. Uh, which is why you can see many of their uh, deities uh, mirror each other. Uh, but also, uh, again, uh, if we go back to the very beginning, uh, a lot of the Roman religion uh, has some analogies to the Etruscans. And uh, we need to think about their uh, practice of faith a bit more different than we consider the Abrahamic religions. Because uh, while there were certain ceremonies and uh, traditions that had to be withheld, uh, everyday faith was uh, more, uh, let's say, disorganized. It wasn't always led by a priest. You could, for instance, sacrifice uh, at a shrine to a certain deity uh, on your own. But he also did have a love for Greece and he traveled to Greece. So talk, let's talk about, you know, anything about his time in Greece? If you wouldn't mind. Yeah, I haven't looked up uh, that much about his time in Greece, but uh, we can again see that uh, Hellenistic culture was considered uh, quite uh, important to the Romans. Uh, for instance, uh, having a Greek house slave as a teacher for your children was considered uh, uh, quite important for uh, the patricians at least. Um, because uh, even though they uh, saw the Greeks as inferior to themselves as uh, a nation, uh, they still had uh, quite a reverence for the Greek culture and uh, Greek philosophy. Right. And how did we don't have to sorry, forgive me, but we have to go to Nero's end? And how how did his end come come about? Well. Uh, in his absence, he was simply declared an enemy of Rome, and uh, when people were sent to execute him, uh, he simply did the job for them. So he died at his own blade. And this is where we're going to get into Vespian, yeah. the last of this episode. Mm -hmm. Before we, this is just, this is such a huge episode yeah. that we need two parts, yeah. because Rome is such a huge uh, historical. Influenced. Yeah. I mean, into mm. at least two mm. parts in this. We could have had one about the Republic itself, mm. but I want to focus more about the emperors. Yeah. But we're going to talk a little bit about Vespin mm. before before we end here, and we're going to end with the Battle of Judea. Mm. So let's talk about. He had conquered Britain. Mm. He came, and the Jews they were, they were not happy during Nero's reign, so they revolted. So he came to. Judea, totally about the Battle of Judea, which is quite a brutal yeah. one. Yeah, uh, we often hear about the Eastern Front in the Second World War, but Rome also had the Eastern Front, and that was called Judea. Uh, 
all those who have seen Monty Python's Life of Brian know that uh, yeah, there were quite a few different uh, rebellious groups. And if you look uh, apart from uh, uh, the spaceships and the singing on the crosses, uh, Life of Brian is actually one of the better representations of uh, Judea at that time. Because uh, there was uh, political fractures, there were religious fractures, and you had all these groups that uh, hated each other just as much as they hated the Romans. So that, of course, led to the Great Jewish Revolt. Though even that uh, had some internal fractures. So what? So one, one, perhaps one of the most important, one of the most important figures in this battle is Josephus, yep. and he did he switch sides or was he captured by the Romans? Did he have any choice at all in this? He was a prophet, wasn't he? Uh, I am not quite sure about that. Um... But uh, I think the fact that he survived uh, should be a credit to that he was actually uh, among those who switched sides. And that was not uncommon during uh, Roman revolts that uh, there were those who switched sides and actually collaborated with the Romans. He did try to go into the Romans, not to go inside the city to talk to the, to try to make them surrender, isn't yeah. that correct? But in the end, they saw him as a traitor, and so they didn't listen to him. But one of the reasons for his survival is that he did said to Vespian that he was going to be emperor, sort of as a prophecy. And they quite liked that prophecy. Yeah, and again, uh, we can see that uh, history and myth often blend together. And what many historians uh, probably know is that history is, of course, a narrative. And especially when we look at older sources, those narratives are often embellished. And that is certainly the case when it comes to the Roman Empire. And in the end, the Jews, they failed the rebellion. Rome won, and Vespian returned to Rome. Next episode, we're going to take a look at Vespian's reign. We're going to start at Vespian's reign. We're going to take a look at Marcus Aurelius, Commodus, Emperor Constantine, the fall of Rome, why Rome fell, and how did it fall? This, will be, this has been part one of Well That Aged Well. Thank you very much for listening. My guest has been Erik Tiller. He, he's a, a very good friend of mine. Friend, if you will. And, from Rome? Uh, yeah. I would have a very good friend from Rome. But no, yeah, this has been Well That Aged Well. And uh, thank you for listening. We will take a look at the building of Colosseum as well. Next episode. So. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's